Greetings, Earthlings. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to KSKQ 89.5 in Ashland, Oregon, and 94.1 in Medford, Oregon. And this is... Dream Infringement! Dream Infringement is a super squad of three friends, Bobby, Emily, and Jennifer. Every week, we broadcast from KSKQ Studios into your ears by means of your radio antenna and or internet feed to bring you some of the funnest themes known to man. Every week, we pick a different theme, and we tell stories that go along with that theme and play songs from a playlist that is curated, handpicked by none other than me, Emily, and Jennifer. I am Bobby, and I am going to tell you the theme that we have chosen for this week. It's a fantastic theme. It's an exciting theme. It's a cutting-edge theme. It's a theme that allows us to explore all of the far reaches of philosophy, of theory, of curiosity. Questions will be answered. Answers will be questioned. So what theme is that? That theme is What's luck got to do with it? Now, let me explain what this theme is all about. See, there are coincidences, things that happen to people through the history of mankind. Wild coincidences have happened. And sometimes it has been for the better, sometimes for the worse. People like to chalk it up to luck. They like to chalk it up to good fortune or maybe just or maybe just a random series of events that happen to one person or series of people. And so we are going to talk about historical instances and concepts that have to do with what's luck got to do with it. So for the next hour or so, I recommend that you buckle up and hang on tight because it's going to be a wild ride of music and stories. So to kick things off, we have chosen to play Alanis Morissette with Ironic. It's like This is a story that starts and ends in Virginia. At around 1920 or so, a young boy was helping his father cut wheat in a field when a thunderbolt struck the blade of his scythe. But as he was not injured, and it was a hard story to believe, it faded from the relevant memory of Roy Cleveland Sullivan for a time. In 1932, at age 20, he married Martha and at age 24 he began working as a ranger in the Shenandoah National Park. People described him as a brawny man with a broad rugged face, sort of like Gene Hackman. At the age of 30, 1942, he was on the mountains when a very severe thunderstorm hit. He sought shelter in a fire lookout tower, but it was a newly built tower and had no lightning rods installed and so the tower was getting hit. After about seven to eight direct hits, he decided to make a run for it, but the lightning got him. It burned a half-inch strip along his right leg, hit his toe, 
and left a hole in his shoe. One year later, he would marry Madeline. Ten years later, he would marry Vinda. And nine years later, he married Patricia. She was only 19, and he was 50 at this time. They went on to have three children. At the age of 57, seven years into their marriage, he was driving his truck on the mountain when lightning hit nearby trees, and a bolt deflected and struck him through the window of his truck. It knocked him unconscious, burned off his eyebrows and eyelashes, and set his hair on fire. The truck eventually rolled to a stop, closely missing plunging off of a cliff. The next year, in 1970, he was in his front yard when lightning hit a nearby power transformer and again deflected and hit his left shoulder. Two years later, in 1972, he was again up at the ranger station and he was struck again. And for the second time, his hair caught on fire. He ran to the restroom but couldn't get his head under the faucet, but eventually got, got it out by using a wet towel. I have tried to lead a good life, he told the press in 1972. I have never been a fearful man, but I have to tell you the truth. When I hear thunder now, I feel a little shaky. Just before it strikes, he said, I smell a certain smell like sulfur and my hair bristles all over. That's the signal. In about two seconds, no longer than three, it hits. Too late to hide. I don't believe God is after me, he theorized. If he was, the first bolt would have been enough. Best I can figure is that I have some chemical, some mineral in my body that draws lightning. I just wish I knew. After this fourth strike, he began to take things a little more personally. He began to carry a can of water with him wherever he went in case his hair was once again on fire. And he began to avoid crowds and crowds began to avoid him, fearful that he would attract lightning and it would hurt others. But this made him feel lonely and sad. He gained the nickname Human Lightning Conductor and Human Lightning Rod, and possibly my favorite of the humiliating nicknames was the Spark Ranger. The next year, in 1973, he was patrolling in his truck, saw a storm coming, and took evasive action, and it seemed like he just couldn't shake the pesky cloud. But he drove fast and he thought he outran it. Very carefully, he stepped out of his truck and soon after, boom, lightning hit his left arm and leg, knocked off his shoe, crossed over to his right leg. Still conscious, he crawled to his truck and poured the faithful can of water he always kept with him over his head because once again, his hair was on fire. After a three-year break, he was once again struck by lightning, he injured his ankle, and once again, his hair caught fire. The next year, in 1977, at the age of 65, six months after he had retired from the park, he was enjoying a day of trout fishing, when out of nowhere, lightning struck the top of his head, scorching his hair, chest and stomach. He was still conscious, but when he turned, he saw a bear trying to eat his fish. So he hit the bear, and he claimed that it was the 22nd time that he'd hit a bear with a stick in his lifetime. One could say the lightning thing was a very bad sequence of events, but to hit 22 different bears with sticks and not be maimed or ravaged to death? But no one ever highlights 
hey, this is the man who allegedly beat 22 bears with sticks in his lifetime and survived. We all just focus on the lightning. It gets all the credit. He did manage to escape one time. Kind of. A storm appeared while he and his family were hanging out in his backyard. But the lightning missed him and struck his wife instead, which was really a scary event for the whole family. When a storm blows up, he explained, I put my wife and three kids in the living room and go off by myself and sit in the kitchen, scared. In the trailer they lived on, Roy spared no expense on lightning rods. It was rumored that he had a four-poster bed with lightning rods on them, but again, that was a rumor, not true. But he did affix lightning rods to all four corners of the trailer. He fastened more rods to the TV antenna, electric meter, and six of the tallest trees. Each was made of heavy-gauge copper wire and sunk seven feet in the ground. A work colleague would say he remembered more than one doctor who had sent Roy money and a monetary stipend to travel to them so they could examine him in an effort to determine the cause of his repeated lightning strikes. But no one had an answer to why this kept happening to him. Roy passed away at the age of 71 in Dooms, Virginia, not by lightning, by his own hand. The rumor was that it was a mysterious and unrequited love. But maybe in the end he was seeking to outrun his old enemy? Marianne Cooper, Professor Emeritus of Emergency Medicine at the University of Illinois in Chicago, who has studied strike survivors for three decades, says being struck by lightning can cause chronic pain and causes brain injury post-concussion type symptoms. She said, you and I can filter out distractions and still focus. One of the things we see with lightning and electric shock patients is that ability is scraped off. The website Cracked wrote an article about the most unluckiest people in the world, and he was one of the top 10. But was it bad luck? Or was it that the places where he worked and lived were much more conducive to being struck by lightning? Like... How would the story have turned out if he would have moved his family to someplace that doesn't have as frequent lightning occurrences like Oregon or Washington? Would the lightning still have found him? Or was it just that he was on mountains all the time or by a body of water or by a transformer that seemed to attract lightning? Was it purely circumstantial or was there something about him that was attracting the lightning? science would point to it being circumstantial but I know definitely for him it didn't feel that way it felt like he was being directly targeted and that had a very profound effect on him it was very isolating and it made him feel responsible for other people getting hurt or the potential that they could get hurt by something as uncontrollable and random as lightning it almost sounds like an origin story of a superhero like the Hulk, where they're, they're doomed to wander alone. So, always remember, folks, the two adages, when thunder roars, go indoors, and when you see lightning flash, you should dash. Don't hide underneath a tree. That's the second most dangerous place to be. First most dangerous place to be is an open space. Also dangerous to be on a body of water when there's a lightning storm. 
So the song I'm going to play is one that was actually written about him by the band I Hate Myself. Unbeknownst to the brother, Zieglund did not die. He wasn't even seriously hurt. The bullet had only grazed him before hitting a tree. Zieglund prospered in life. Twenty years after he dodged a literal bullet, he and his son were cutting firewood. They cut down the tree with the bullet in it, but the wood was so tough it was almost impossible to split it with an axe. So they bored some holes in the fallen tree and put small amounts of dynamite in them, like any logical person would do. I don't know, maybe that was a tree chopping tactic. I've never been a tree feller, so I wouldn't know, but it does sound a bit extreme. Anyway, let's see how this um, (laughs) plays out. So they put the dynamite in the holes Uh, that they had bored into the tree. Zieglund and his son moved about 50 feet away and set the explosions off. The bullet, which had waited 20 years for Henry Zieglund, was blown out of the tree with great force, and the farmer was hit in the left temple and killed instantly. Or did he? Because even though this story appeared over a hundred times in newspapers and it was presented as a legitimate uh, news item, there's actually quite a bit of evidence to suggest that the story of Henry Zeigland is a hoax. There is actually no record of anyone with the names Zeigland or Ticknor or anything similar to those names that lived in Honeygrove, Texas. There are no vital re- There are no vital records that can be found for people who match these dates and descriptions in Texas or any other state. So the story was first published in the Jackson Evening News in March 24, 1905. Um, It was picked up by several papers and began. A marvelous case of punishment on earth for the sins of the flesh occurred in Drino Township in this country today. Twenty years ago, Henry Zeigland, then a handsome, wealthy young man, jilted beautiful Maisie Tickner, and the girl committed suicide. Then the story disappeared um, for about a decade, and then just sort of reappeared in 1913. The names were unchanged, but the newspapers still ran the story as current news. And this time around, the story got a lot more traction. It ran in newspapers from Edmonton, Canada, to New Orleans, to Buffalo. So the success of this hoax is far more impressive than the fabricated story of Henry Zeigland. And who knows how it got started. Um, But it is kind of an interesting, albeit a bit morbid, uh, tale (laughs) to come up with. Um, So yeah, it's kind of funny that someone made up this story and then here we are in 2022 almost 2023 um still talking about it and now it's been debunked but there's actually still quite a few articles on the internet that um still uh claim that it's true the people who wrote it 
they they had a lot of success with this story. Now here is the song Bulletproof by LaRue. There's this scene in the movie Benjamin Button starring Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. And it describes this really terrible thing that happens to Kate Blanchett's character. She's a dancer, like a ballet dancer. And so, of course, her body is like her most precious instrument in this career that she has chosen. And Benjamin Button, played by Brad Pitt, he narrates this unfolding of a scene where he talks about all of these series of events that seem so minuscule and... Uh, just unimportant and they all just happen to happen at just the right time and in just the right order so that this really terrible accident happens to Kate Blanchett's uh, character, the dancer, where ultimately um, stepping off of a curb and and having to stop and wait for like some children to cross the street and then crossing the street it all ultimately leads to this specific moment where she is like hit by a car and her ankle is shattered or something and then she's rendered unable to dance professionally um, and it's so sad and it's so heartbreaking to see this really special thing robbed of her. Um, and I had never looked at, um, you know, like an event being preceded by a series of just seemingly uh, unimportant, uh, unconsequential, inconsequential events and uh and when i saw that it just really made me think because there are things in all of our lives i know for myself personally i can think of so many huge events in my lives in my life and i guess plural lives <laughs> we all live multiple lives in one lifetime it feels like but I can think of events that are so meaningful to me um, and impactful in my life and how they were preceded by just these seemingly unimportant, just like tiny little coincidences, things that happened that led up to the greater event. Um, and what makes an event great? Well, I guess it's impactful in that it changes you. Maybe it affects you in a way where you have to struggle. You have to change. Uh, you have to overcome. Or uh, maybe it's a change for the good, like a choice that you made, like a person you decided to marry, right? Maybe it's a child that you're bringing into the world. Maybe it's a car that you bought. Maybe it's a career that you chose. And it just sent you down a path that led to something that was impactful, that was pivotal for you. Um, and all these little things that happened to lead up to it 
in some way they kind of like the way a border collie changes the direction of a herd of sheep with these small adjustments maybe that's what those little events are doing and we don't even know it until we look back on it and yeah of course there are people who choose to view these tiny events leading up to the pivotal event the impactful event those tiny events is pieces of a puzzle that are inevitably going to fall into place to lead to that impactful event that was going to happen whether you wanted it to or not they describe it as fate and there are some people that view it as just this like random generation of events that just happen and i think that in my mind these events these these seemingly minuscule events that happen that lead up to the moment that changes you or contributes to you as a person and your trajectory in life i think those tiny pivotal moments they are gifts because you can choose in those little things to make them count to make them be more than just tiny insignificant events it's a chance for you to prove your character it's a tiny chance for you to show yourself who you are i believe those are tiny opportunities for you to display your authenticity and when those small events lead to the greater event whether that big event surprises you or you can see it coming from a mile away you're going to be ready for it and you might not think that you're ready for it but if you used all those tiny events as opportunities to exercise who you are to learn things about yourself that maybe you didn't know you were capable of then magic will happen so let's try to find beauty in the minuscule because beauty in the minuscule will help us to recognize beauty in life because life is riddled with those insignificant events so let's make it count here is modest mouse with float on Violet Constance Jessup was born in 1887 in Argentina. Her father was Irish who had immigrated there to become a sheep farmer. He married fellow immigrant Catherine Kelly, who came from a wealthy family. Violet was the oldest daughter of five surviving siblings. Her father died of cancer in 1903 at the age of 41. Violet was just age 15. So the rest of the family returned to England, where she attended a convent school and cared for her younger sister, while her mother was at sea working as a stewardess. When her mother became ill, she left school and, following in her mother's footsteps, applied to be a stewardess. Violet, who had gray-blue eyes, auburn hair, and spoke with an Irish accent, 
had to dress down to make herself less attractive in order to be hired. At age 21, her first stewardess position was with the Royal Mail Line aboard Orinoco in 1908. In 1911, she began to work as a stewardess for the White Star Liner, the RMS Olympic. It was a luxury ship that was the largest civilian liner at the time. She really didn't want to work for the White Star because she didn't like the idea of sailing the North Atlantic run due to the weather conditions, and she had heard stories about the demanding passengers on that run. Nevertheless, she signed on and began working 17 hours a day and being paid a little over two pounds per month. She worked in first-class cabins, attending to passengers' many needs. She made beds, brought breakfast trays, cleaned bathrooms, arranged flowers, and ran errands. She was on board in 1911 when the Olympic left from Southampton and collided with the British warship, the HMS Hawk. There were no fatalities, and despite damage, the ship was able to make it back to port without sinking. Violet liked working on the Olympic and didn't really want to join the Titanic, but was persuaded by her friends who thought it would be a wonderful experience. So she dressed in a new ankle-length brown suit, set out in a horse-drawn cab to join the brand new ship at her berth in Southampton. She boarded the Titanic as a stewardess in 1912 at age 24. That faithful day, shortly before midnight, she settled into her bunk, flipped through some magazines, read a prayer, and was starting to drift off to sleep when she heard what she described as an awful grinding crash. She dressed quickly and sped to the section of the ship to which she had been assigned. She helped passengers adjust their life belts and reminded them to dress warmly, take blankets, and pack up their valuables. As she moved from room to room, she promised that these were merely precautionary measures, because she did not fully comprehend that the ship was truly sinking. It came when she turned to say something to a fellow stewardess and saw that the forward part of the ship was going down. For a fraction of a second, she says, my heart stood still, as is often the case when faith, hitherto unshaken faith, gets its first setback. She was ordered up on deck to serve as an example of how to behave for the non-English speakers who could not follow the instructions given to them. She was later ordered into lifeboat 16, and that's how she spent her time for the two hours and 40 minutes from the time of the collision until the boat itself sank. After arriving in New York City, she returned to Southampton. Understandably, she was not eager to return to a life at sea in the wake of the disaster, but she felt she didn't have a choice because she needed the work. Following the outbreak of World War I, she served as a nurse on the HMHS Britannic, which had been refitted as a hospital ship during the war. It was in November of 1916 when the ship struck a deep sea mine and sank within 55 minutes, killing 32 of the 1,066 people on board. Jessup was told to disembark in a lifeboat with some of her shipmates, but when they reached the water, she saw something horrifying. The ship's propellers were still moving, sucking passengers and boats alike into their blades. Though she had spent years working on the ocean, she did not know how to swim. She clutched at her life belt and jumped overboard. When she resurfaced, her head struck the ship's keel. She said, my brain shook like a solid body in a bottle of liquid. She would suffer headaches through her life after this, and later a doctor told her that she had suffered a fractured skull. 
She grabbed a spare life belt and was floating by and managed to hang on until one of the Britannic's motorboats picked her up. As a side note, one of Violet's quirks was the constant cleanliness of her teeth. She cleaned them multiple times a day with a toothbrush. When the Titanic sank, she lost all her personal belongings, and while aboard the Carpathia, all she wanted to do was to brush her teeth, but she was unable to obtain a toothbrush. In an interview, she would say, Now the next time you go on a boat, for God's sake, if the boat is going to sink, put a toothbrush in your pocket. When the Britannic was sinking, she did put a toothbrush in her pocket, carried it with her, and when she was being transported back to a hotel with the ship survivors, she said she was in her room, brushing her teeth. There was a knock on the door, and the sister matron opened it. She didn't say, Oh, Miss Jessup, I'm glad to see you're alive. She said, Where did you get that? And Violet said, I brought it with me. And apparently the matron left and slammed the door and didn't speak to her again. Which seems like a strange reaction. Why are you brushing your teeth? I brought a toothbrush. And then it made her very angry. Jessup returned to work for White Star Line in 1920. When she was 36, she married John James Lewis, a fellow White Star Line steward, and describes having a brief and disastrous marriage. It lasted less than a year. She signed on with the Red Star Line, which sent her around the world on five cruises. After a period of working clerical jobs on shore, she returned to sea for two years on the Royal Mail Line's voyages to South America. She retired from her very eventful career in 1950 at the age of 63 and moved to the countryside where she raised chickens and there she remained until the time of her passing in 1971, 20 years later, at the age of 83. I'm impressed that she was able to still keep on getting on ships after all of that. She did still a lot of cruises. I don't know what she told herself, how she psyched herself up to continue this line of work, but she did. I'm trying to imagine getting through that experience at a time when people didn't really know or talk about things like survivor's guilt and PTSD. I hope that her retirement on land was just the most incredibly fulfilling, peaceful time of her life. The song I'm going to play is by Neutral Milk Hotel, and it's Aeroplane Over the Sea. What a beautiful face I have found in this place That is circling all around the sun What a beautiful dream that could flash on the screen In a blink of an eye Well, we have about 10 minutes left of our show, so I thought I would regale you with some delightful tales uh, of irony. And I I mean, I think they'll be delightful. You be the judge. So our first one is about David Ingham. He's an artist who was thrown out of school and told he would never amount to much. He was later commissioned to paint a portrait of the very headmaster who expelled him 55 years before. David Ingham was thrown out of Ermistead's grammar school as a 12-year-old boy by Marcellus Forster. But the 67-year-old, who went on to become an art teacher himself, was later approached by the school to paint a portrait of Mr. Forster. 
the very man who had expelled him. I wonder if he was the one who said he wouldn't amount to much. Um, also, I was feeling really empathetic for um, 12-year-old David Ingham, but I honestly, I don't know what he did. He turned out to be a seemingly great guy. He's an artist and a teacher, so those are things that people typically kind of think highly of. Okay, next we have the man who sued the Guinness Book of Records over most lawsuits claim. Um, Jonathan Lee Riches is thought to have filed over 4,000 lawsuits around the world against various peoples, entities, objects, and concepts. In a boldly ironic move, he has now filed a lawsuit against the Guinness Book of World Records, hoping to get an injunction against them naming him as the world's most litigious man in their 2010 edition. The Guinness Book of World Records has no right to publish my work, my legal masterpieces, he says in the legal filing. He is also unhappy about the nicknames that they plan to ascribe to him, including Superman, the Duke of Lawsuits, and Johnny, Sue, Nami. Previous targets of his legal ire have included George W. Bush, Che Guevara, Perez Hilton, the Eiffel Tower, Britney Spears, Adolf Hitler's Nazi Party, Google, the Roman Empire, the Queen, the Magna Carta, the Wu-Tang Clan, Plato, Emilio Estevez, and Nordic gods. It doesn't say which ones, but oh boy, this this guy, he has a lot of um, bones to pick, and I guess... Um, the Guinness Book of Records uh, just happened to get on his radar. I'm also just really curious what the lawsuits were against some of these um, <laughs> people and entities. Like, some of them are, like, they make sense. Like, Adolf Hitler's Nazi party. Yeah, of course. Like, sue them all the time, every day. Everyone should sue them. Um, Google. Yeah, I'm sure there's some shady stuff happening that they could be sued over. But Emilio Estevez, what did he ever do to anyone? Uh, Britney Spears, she's got enough problems going on with her life. Anyway, maybe we'll have another episode and we can take a deeper dive into, into these lawsuits. All right, our third little ironic tale is about a little lamb who needed a woolen sweater to survive winter. A tiny orphaned lamb had to use a woolen sweater or jumper to help him cope with sub-zero temperatures during the winter. He was affectionate, he's affectionately known as Jack Frost. He was abandoned at birth and later rescued by volunteers at Manor Farm Country Park near Southampton, Hans. The rescuers thought it would be a good idea for him to wear an extra woolly layer. The tiny knitted garment meant for a human baby fit perfectly, and Jack really enjoyed snuggling up in it during the freezing weather. He was happy to be wrapped up against the cold. The only time Jack wasn't wearing the cute little sweater was when it was being washed. Aww, he he wore a sweater made out of um, wool, which is what his coat is made out of. That is so cute. 
All right, folks, that just about wraps up our show this evening. It's been a pleasure spending this Monday night with you. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate your support of community radio. And you should keep listening because we have a really super lineup happening tonight, especially on a Monday. Like, Monday's... Everyone complains about Monday, but when you're listening to KSKQ, there's really nothing to complain about because after this, you've got World Music Journey. And then after that, from 9 to 10, you've got World Remix with DJ Jawfirm. And then from 10 to 12, you've got Backpack Boombox with David Downey. So he, he'll take you into Tuesday. And that is, I don't know. It just doesn't get a whole lot better than that. So stick around for all those shows. Well, we'll be back next Monday with more stories and more songs based on a different weekly theme. And we cannot wait to uh, catch you here on KSKQ. All right, we're going to play you out with a song Here's Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra. Good night. Have a great week. <laughs>